Good morning. This uh, hearing of the, I'm going to say the full committee, subcommittee's name here, the Senate Foreign Relations Subcommittee on Europe and Regional Security Cooperation is called to order. Um, I want to thank our witnesses for appearing today, uh, for their thoughtful testimony. Uh, I'll ask that my written statement be just entered in the record because it pretty well repeats the testimony, so no sense going to that, and I'll certainly turn it over to uh, Senator Murphy for his opening statement. But let me just make a couple comments to begin. Uh, I made my first trip as a United States Senator to Europe uh, in, Jan in February, March of 2011. I visited Georgia, Ukraine, and the Baltic states. Uh, Georgia had already been invaded. Uh, Ukraine's primary problem was uh, corruption within their, their wheat markets. This was before the invasion of, of uh, Crimea and, and eastern Ukraine. But was quite notable is just the pressure that Russia was uh, putting on those, those fledgling democracies. I kept calling, we called them the, the, the ring of democracies around uh, Russia. And for what reason? Uh, apparently just to destabilize, but we, we certainly determined the effectiveness of their propaganda, of their disinformation campaigns. Uh, later we we're gonna find out you know, the, the hybrid warfare that they instituted in, in Crimea and, and then burgeoning into invasion of, of eastern Ukraine. So uh, the title of this hearing, European Energy Security, U.S. Interest in Coercive Russian Diplomacy, would just be another method that uh, Russia is utilizing to, to destabilize. To destabilize. You know, our goal as the United States is to destabilize, provide security. And it's, uh, in, in subsequent trips over, over to Europe, it's pretty easy to make the point to our European allies and people that are struggling to shed the legacy of, of, of Russian corruption, of Soviet Union corruption, their future lies with the West, certainly economically. There, there is no economic future looking to the East to Russia. And so what we need to do is we need to do everything we can to help stabilize the situation. The purpose of this hearing is, again, the subsequent visits to these, these nations. Uh, and it's actually quite confusing, all, all the different pipelines, which ones we, we should support, which ones shouldn't we support, which ones we should, you know, what type of in infrastructure needs to be built. But that's really kind of the purpose of this hearing is try and lay out the facts, how important energy security is. You know, America, we've done a pretty good job of becoming energy independent. Uh, we need to do everything we can to encourage Europe to take a look at this holistically, strategically, and make sure that, uh, again, not, not to deny the use of Russian oil and gas, but to make sure that they can't utilize that as in their course of diplomacy. So again, I, I want to thank the witnesses for your testimony. We're going to look forward to it. Uh, with that, I'll turn it over to uh, Senator Murphy. Uh, thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. Thank you for convening this hearing. Thank you to both of our witnesses. I look forward to your testimony. Um, this morning, uh, there was a deadly explosion at a gas plant in Austria. It sent a uh, shockwave through European energy markets already. Prices for delivery are soaring, one dead, uh, several injured. And, um, this is uh, a reminder uh, frankly, of the fragility of European energy security. Uh, but it's not a wake-up call because we've had plenty of those before. Almost a decade ago, in January of 2009, the lights went out in Europe. A dispute between Russia and Ukraine led the Russian government to cut off gas supplies to Europe in the middle of the winter, leaving most of Southeast Europe and several other countries without power. Uh, the standoff continued for two weeks. Uh, and so this crisis, now a decade ago, it exposed the region's overwhelming reliance on Russian gas. And it did motivate the European Union to adopt 
the third energy package later that year. Uh, since then, it has been a chore to keep all of the European Union together in that initiative, though there have been some, I think, very encouraging developments. Uh, the development of new interconnector pipelines so that gas can more easily move within Europe, uh, improved regulatory frameworks so uh, that Russia can't bully smaller countries. Um, uh, there are some uh, very positive things happening. Um, but uh, we uh, saw a budget submitted to the Congress earlier this year which proposed a $50 billion increase in defense and a 40% reduction to the State Department. Uh, the State Department, which oversees work with Europe uh, to try to reduce dependency on Russian oil. Uh, we are simply fooling ourselves as a Congress and as a country if we think we can protect this nation and our treaty allies with a 40% reduction to the department that works primarily in the area of energy security. We have to fundamentally rethink the way in which we allocate resources to protect this country. The military is important, and I'm darn proud of the helicopters and the submarines and the jet engines that we make in Connecticut. Uh, but when it comes to uh, European security, uh, we have to recognize that the way in which we spend money today simply isn't working. And so to that end, I'm currently working on legislation that would establish an investment fund that pools resources to diversify energy sources and energy transport capabilities of Central and Eastern European countries. We're spending $4 billion in a European reassurance initiative that is almost all um, uh, military spending. That's important. But if we're spending no money trying to actually move their gas and oil dependence away from Russia, um, then, we are, 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 then we are simply not meeting the security needs of our treaty allies. So uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman, for convening this. I look forward to the witnesses. Thanks, Senator Murphy. Our, next, our first witness is Dr. Wes Mitchell. Uh, Dr. Mitchell is the Assistant Secretary of State for European and Eurasian Affairs. Prior to his appointment, Dr. Mitchell co-founded and spent 12 years building the Center for European Policy Analysis. He's the author of numerous articles, reports, and books on transatlantic relationships and geopolitics. Dr. Mitchell received his PhD in political science from Freie University in Berlin, Germany. Uh, Dr. Mitchell. Thank you, Chairman Johnson and Ranking Member Murphy, for inviting me to test testify before this subcommittee on European energy security. I appreciate the Senate's leadership on this subject, and in particular, the active role that both of you have played in keeping congressional attention focused on this and other important dimensions of transatlantic security. We live in a time of profound change, change in international economics, change in technology, change in the scale and nature of threats facing the West. These changes make it more important than ever that the United States be strategic in its approach to Europe and that we cultivate strong alliances as an advantage in geopolitical competition. No other power in history, past or present, has had the wealth of allies that the United States has today. President Trump and Secretary Tillerson have made a priority of strengthening our alliances. That commitment has been underscored in multiple cabinet-level visits to Europe, affirmations of Article 5 of NATO, uh, seven trips to Europe by Secretary Tillerson, $1.4 billion in new funding requests for the European Defense Initiative, intensified U.S. diplomatic engagement in the crises on Europe's southern and eastern frontiers, and as we'll discuss today, increased attention to the U.S. role in the diversification of European energy. The energy security of our allies is a fundamental U.S. national interest. 
When allies' access to reliable and diversified energy is secure, they are less susceptible to pressure from outside powers. In recent years, we have been reminded of just how vulnerable many of our allies in Europe are in this regard. Russia has repeatedly demonstrated its willingness to wield its vast natural resources as a geopolitical weapon against our allies. One study found 55 instances of Russia using supply cutoffs for political purposes over a 14-year period. Uh, another identified 41 examples in one year alone of Moscow linking political demands to energy deliveries. Today, EU member states collectively remain the largest net energy importer in the world, and the Russian Federation remains by far their biggest single supplier. It is neither possible nor desirable to exclude Russian gas from the European market. The problem is that Russian leaders tend to view energy exports not as a matter of supply and demand, but as the extension of politics by other means. Moscow is working to construct two new pipelines, Nord Stream 2 and multi-line Turk Stream, which if completed would bypass Ukraine as a transit country, heighten the vulnerability of Poland and the Balkans, and deepen European dependence on the Russian gas monopoly. Russia's goal is to divide the West and drive America apart from our allies. Its efforts are smart and coordinated. The manipulative use of energy is part of a toolkit that includes cyber attacks and disinformation, as well as military buildups, exercises, threats, and as we have seen in Ukraine and Georgia, the actual use of military force. To counter these methods, the United States pursues a European energy security strategy built on three planks, diversification of fuel types, of countries of origin, and of delivery routes. We are working to spur the development of infrastructure for diversity of supply through import terminals like Croatia's Kirk Island liquefied natural gas floating storage and regasification project. We encourage allies to invest in intra-European pipelines, and we are revising the rules governing the export of liquefied natural gas and U.S.-produced crude oil, which will unlock the wealth of American energy to the strategic benefit of allies and provide a boon to the U.S. economy. The advent of cheap and abundant LNG is turning natural gas into a globally traded commodity, connecting otherwise isolated regional markets to the Atlantic Basin. For allies reliant on a single source of energy, the mere availability of LNG provides leverage when negotiating contracts with Russia. To cite one notable example, in the period since Lithuania began importing LNG, the price it pays for gas has fallen 20%. An important component in U.S. strategy is to encourage closer political and economic cooperation in the inter at the regional level among the allies most vulnerable to supply manipulation in Central and Eastern Europe. Lack of seriousness about the need to increase north-south infrastructure between the Baltic and Black Seas has contributed to Europe's vulnerability. We have prioritized U.S. engagement in groupings such as the Three Seas Initiative, Visegrad Group, Bucharest 9, and Nordic-Baltic Group as platforms for bolstering the region's resilience against energy coercion. In all of our efforts, we seek to ensure open, competitive, and sustainable energy markets. We advocate for fair and transparent competition to give U.S. companies a level playing field. We encourage the EU to abide by its own commitments to diversification under instruments like the Third Energy Package. Some of the largest EU member states ignore these instruments in pursuit of commercially advantageous deals with Gazprom that undercut fellow member states to the east. Russian influence makes easier headway in countries that are weak internally. To, re to reduce those vulnerabilities, we work to strengthen the components of stability in the countries of the Western Balkans. This administration recognizes energy security as a fundamental component of U.S. national security objectives in Europe. We will continue to work closely with our allies and partners there to move the European continent toward a more diversified, efficient, and secure energy landscape. 
This is one of my foremost concerns as Assistant Secretary for European and Eurasian Affairs, and I remain committed to working with this subcommittee and Congress to achieve these objectives. Senator Johnson, uh, distinguished members of the subcommittee, I thank you for the opportunity to appear before this body. I appreciate your leadership on this critical issue and look forward to your questions. Thank you. Thank you, Secretary Mitchell. Our next witness is Mr. John McCarrick. Now, Mr. McCarrick is the Deputy Assistant Secretary in the Bureau of Energy Resources at the State Department. He previously advised institutional investors on policy and political risk in energy and related sectors. Mr. McCarrick also practiced corporate law at Hogan and Hartson and was an investment banker at Merrill Lynch. He is a graduate of Georgetown University and Georgetown University Law Center. Uh, Secretary McCarrick. First time. I'd like to thank Chairman Johnson and Ranking Member Murphy and the members of this subcommittee for the opportunity to appear today to discuss European energy security, an issue of vital importance to the United States. A discussion of the role the Russian Federation plays in Europe's overall energy security is both fitting and timely. I will focus on a few themes, including the dangers of energy overdependence and the critical importance of energy diversification in bolstering energy security. I will highlight the contribution that liquefied natural gas, or LNG, can make to Europe's energy diversification efforts, and also the need for Europe to continue to improve its energy infrastructure and to implement measures to promote a more integrated and flexible energy market. Energy security is a top policy priority for our European partners because many of them are highly dependent on a single supplier, the Russian Federation, for gas imports. Although some of the most vulnerable countries in Europe are making rapid progress to reduce their dependence, 11 continue to rely on Russian gas for 75% or more of their annual needs and several others for 50% or more. The dangers of excessive dependence on a single supplier were highlighted as Senator Murphy noted in 2006, 9, and 14, when Russian gas, when Russia cut off gas supplies to and through the Ukraine, hurting both the Ukraine and other Russian countries. Such actions are a reminder of Russia's persistent use of energy as a weapon. The United States does not seek to eliminate Russian gas from the market. Our priority is helping Europe minimize dependence upon a single supplier. The United States supports a pro-Europe energy security policy based on diversification of fuel types, supply sources, and delivery routes. These actions are all needed to foster a more open and competitive European energy market, one in which all companies play by free market rules. Indeed, the United States advocates for infrastructure projects, projects identified by the European Union as projects of common interest that enhance diversification. We have long advocated for projects like the Southern Gas Corridor that will help Southern and Central Europe diversify its natural gas supply with 10 billion cubic meters per year of gas from Azerbaijan and the Caspian Sea region as soon as 2020. This will be among the first entirely new sources of gas for Europe in many years. In similar fashion, together with the European Union, we promote the merits of projects like Baltic Pipe, which would bring new supplies of natural gas from Norway via Denmark to Poland and on to countries of Central and Eastern Europe. Importation of LNG, including from the United States when market conditions dictate, can also play an important role in diversification of Europe's gas supply. However, to secure the maximum benefit that LNG offers in promoting diversification, the proper infrastructure is essential. Europe must have both sufficient regasification capacity and the pipeline interconnectors to deliver the gas to the broadest range of customers. We applaud the steps taken by Poland to construct a regasification terminal at Svu no Ushche 
and by Lithuania to build a floating storage and regasification unit, or FSRU, in the port of Klaipeda. The impact of introducing LNG import infrastructure can be transformative. As Assistant Secretary Mitchell noted, after they opened this terminal, they were able to negotiate a 20% reduction in price and also reduce their reliance on Russian gas from 100% in 2015 to 45% in 2016. While these are positive steps, much work remains if LNG is to contribute more options to Europe's energy security. The United States supports the establishment of an FSRU at Kirk Island, Croatia, and has committed technical assistance and diplomatic engagement to the realization of the project. In addition, the United States has endorsed key pipeline interconnectors to reach consumers in southern Central Europe, a region that is among the most dependent on Russian gas supplies. We continue to oppose projects that foster dependence on Russia, including Nord Stream 2 and a multi-line Turkish stream. Russia's aim is political in nature, and these projects would allow Russia to make good on its threat to eliminate Ukraine as a gas transit state. This not only would deprive Ukraine of over $2 billion in annual transit revenues, but of a vital physical and symbolic link to the West. Construction of Nord Stream 2 would also concentrate 75 to 80% of Russian gas imports to the EU through a single route, thereby creating a potential choke point that would significantly increase Europe's vulnerability to supply disruption, whether intentional or accidental. We welcome the skepticism and vocal opposition within Europe to these unwise projects. We note, too, that a number of European allies have expressed national security and energy security concerns over Nord Stream 2. As I close, I want to emphasize that our goal in implementing sanctions both those imposed by executive order and those provided for in law have been to impose costs on Russia, the target of these sanctions for its malign behavior. Neither the U.S. business community nor firms of our partners and allies are the targets of sanctions. We are committed to the coordination with partners and allies called for in counting America's adversaries through Sanctions Act of 2017 and have consulted on multiple occasions with European G7 and other allies. We are committed to the full implementation of this new sanctions law. Again, I would like to thank the subcommittee for the opportunity to appear today, and I welcome your questions. Again, thank you, thank you Secretary McCarrick. Uh, let me just start out by asking, you know, both uh, Senator Murphy and, and you mentioned the fact that uh, we first saw Russia utilize oils as a diplomatic weapon in 2006, and again, 2009, 2014. Um, What's been the delay? I mean, what's the stumbling block in terms of responding to it in a more robust fashion in terms of creation of more infrastructure, more pipeline to deny them that and reduce that vulnerability? There have been projects since then uh, that, have, that have increased the transit of gas. There has also been uh, working closely with the State Department. Uh, we were able to negotiate um, a, a change in the way the Ukraine buys gas. They have not bought any gas directly from Russia in the last two years. So there has been transit agreements that have allowed for them not to purchase gas directly from the Russians. Do you know the level of investment that's been made to, again, diversify uh, the pipelines, that type of thing, since 2006, 2009? I don't have the exact numbers in front of me, but we can get those to you. Do you have any, do you have any idea of how much it would take to really completely diversify it? Well, diversification is a, is, a, 
is is difficult in the sense that there are not as many uh, the the countries in Europe do not have the natural uh, resources that we do in the United States. And so diversification for them really is a question of um, using uh, uh, LNG, for one, that would come from us and other sources. And, uh, but, but candidly, the, the diversification that I talked about in terms of building the pipe that would run um, into Poland is one way of diversification, and the Southern Gas Corridor is another way of diversification. Yeah, and I'm, I'm just trying to get some sort of sense. Right, I mean, you've you got to build infrastructure, pipelines, uh, terminals, that type of thing. I mean, is it a $50 billion investment? Is it a $100 billion investment? Uh, you know, Secretary Mitchell, do you have any feel for that? Uh, let me say that uh, in the case of Ukraine specifically, since the start of the conflict in 2014, the United States has provided around $60 million in energy security assistance, and that is by far the largest concentration of U.S. aid uh, anywhere in Europe on, on energy. On pipelines specifically, there are a number of very important interconnector projects which the United States has promoted. We do that through a combination of diplomacy and, in some cases, technical and financial assistance. So diplomacy is particularly critical because, in many cases, these interconnectors are consistent with existing EU policy under the third energy package, but the EU implements unevenly. So for the United States to weigh in often helps make a difference. Uh, in cases like Kirk Island, uh, as you saw President Trump commit a million dollars on the financial and technical side, it, it's, the U.S. help is particularly useful in creating legal frameworks, um, working with local allies and partners through things like tariff uh, agreements, tariff rates. I think it's on the technical side that the United States has made the biggest difference in some of these interconnecting pipelines, and much less on the on, uh, financial side in terms of direct U.S. taxpayer uh, resources going towards the pipelines themselves. And again, I wasn't really, at this point, talking about what U.S. involvement. I'm just talking about overall investment. Uh, in, in my briefing pack, I was actually surprised the, the size of this. It said about a billion euros per day is what they import. Uh, so it's, you know, 365 billion euros in a, into an economy, what, 15 to $20 trillion large. So size-wise, it's, I was actually surprised. That I, th I would have thought energy would have been more than that. So in light of the, about a 365 billion euro per year import fee for, for, for gas, I'm just trying to figure out how much would be the required investment to diversify the, the transit of that so we don't allow... Russia to have that type of uh, power? I don't have that figure uh, offhand. Uh, I have seen figures, though, that give a sense of the scale of, on the European side through a combination of government and private financing, the scale of investment in some of these pipelines. I would be happy to do a research and return and come up with some aggregate numbers for you. Okay. Yeah, because I just think that's a key feature. Um, who does invest in these pipelines? I mean, is, is the countries themselves, is it private capital, is it the, is it the gas problems of the world? I know they, they do, but I mean, where is the incentive to actually invest in pipelines? It's who, primarily on the does? private side. Uh, so the overwhelming bulk of investment in interconnectors and pipelines comes from uh, the private sector, uh, and uh, you uh, very often have commercially viable gas or oil fields the development of which and delivery of those resources to Europe represents a commercial opportunity. And that's usually what spurs investment. Diplomacy and government action, particularly on the U.S. side, usually constitutes uh, a way of encouraging what is already a set of pre-existing market incentives. Okay. I'll turn over to Senator Murphy. 
thank you very much. Um, I, I'm, I'm very glad that both of you are uh, where you are. Um, uh, big, big fans of both of your work. But um, Secretary Mitchell, you sort of just made my point for me. You mentioned that um, we are spending $60 million on energy security in Ukraine, and that is by and far uh, the most that we are spending in any country. Uh, the administration has requested $4.8 billion in European Reassurance Initiative funding for the coming year. I tried to do the quick math, but suffice it to say, um, we uh, fundamentally misunderstand the threat uh, to Ukraine. Uh, Russia does not want to militarily own Ukraine. It wants to economically and politically break Ukraine, and it wants to use energy as a means of doing that. So by spending $60 million on energy security and requesting $4.8 billion for military security, I, I just think we are totally misaligned with the actual threats. Um, uh, that is um, uh, commentary, not a question. Um, let me stay with Ukraine, uh, though, um, Secretary Mitchell. I've got a letter here that I'll submit for the record without objection from uh, the CEO of NAFTA Gas. Um, and uh, he and others have been raising alarm bells here in Congress uh, about some real backsliding happening in Ukraine with respect to energy reform uh, and broader anti-corruption reform, which you know, is, is very important to ultimately um, making sense of Ukraine's gas market. Um, so I, and one of the things they're concerned about is that uh, in the Obama administration, there were very often very high-level communications um, from the president or vice president uh, to President Poroshenko and others in the Ukrainian government about the need to move forward with uh, reform. Uh, and today, the Ukrainian government is blocking uh, two major anti-corruption efforts, um, backtracking on their promise to implement energy reforms, um, and then second, by going after the Anti-Corruption uh, Bureau and the RADA's Anti-Corruption Committee. Um, so have you raised, uh, Secretary Mitchell, have you raised these um, concerns directly with President Poroshenko. Do you know if the vice president or the president have raised these concerns uh, regarding uh, backsliding on energy reform and anti-corruption reform with President Poroshenko? Thank you for that question, Senator Murphy, and I really appreciate your interest in, in this subject and particularly on Ukraine. Uh, I was just in Kyiv and was also uh, with Secretary Tillerson on his recent trip to Europe where we met with some, some Ukrainian interlocutors. Let me just say this. This is an enormous priority for the Secretary. He has stated that uh, repeatedly. Uh, I also have to con contextualize this by applauding the Ukrainian Rada and government and people for the tremendous strides that they've made in reform in the period since 2014. I don't think any of us would have, could ever have imagined in our wildest dreams the kind of progress that they've made in the, such a short period of time. Uh, Secretary Tillerson has established as a very high priority ensuring that the Ukrainians, uh, encouraging the Ukrainians, stay on the track to reform, not only in some of the easier areas that we've seen progress in, but the harder structural uh, areas of reform. Um, this is especially true in two areas, the anti-corruption court, the establishment of an anti-corruption court, uh, and addressing uh, energy sector reform, particularly in uh, regard to gas tariffs both of which are necessary for Ukraine to comply with the conditions for the next IMF tranche. I have raised these subjects repeatedly and am in contact, constant contact with uh, Poroshenko, Groisman, uh, Foreign Minister Klimkin, Perubi, others, as is the Secretary. Uh, we also are coordinating very closely with the IMF to make sure that our messaging is in sync. Let me say that I think it's uh, worth pointing out the, the positive 
steps that have been taking, taken very recently on pension reform. It was positive to see NAFTA gas form a new a supervisory board with independent uh, experts in the majority. That still has to be signed, and so we continue to make the case to Ukrainian interlocutors that it's not done yet. It was also positive to see uh, Ukrainian commitment to addressing uh, gas tariffs. Um, I, I would say, uh, specifically on NAFTA gas, I can't say enough just how important continued reform in this area is for the well-being of Ukraine going forward in both the geopolitical and economic sense. And I think the uh, CEO of NAFTAGAZ, uh, Andrei Kobolyev, uh, who I met with, uh, Kobolyev, who I met with in uh, Kiev, uh, has really done an outstanding job, uh, not only in keeping the company committed to this pace, but really raising concerns about the need to keep the overall reform pace. It is a priority for the secretary, and it's a priority for me as well. And, and uh, again, I, I, I think that there, I, I don't underestimate uh, the effect that you and the secretary can have. Uh, I would hope that you would encourage the White House to directly engage because the Ukrainians uh, for the last eight years were used to engagement directly from the White House. Uh, and so uh, I think that's a continued necessity. Let me turn, uh, Secretary Mitchell, and maybe on second round, I'll try to ask you a question, uh, uh, Mr. McCarrick, um, on Nord Stream 2. Um, Russia just recently announced through their state media that they've uh, signed all the contracts for material equipment uh, um, uh, and services, um, and yet there still seems to be some uncertainty as to whether the European Union or individual countries have the ability um, or the inclination to stop the pipeline from going forward. Can you just talk about what the administration's engagement has been uh, on Nord Stream 2 uh, and whether the European Union or individual countries like Denmark uh, have the ability to stop Nord Stream 2 before it becomes operational? Thank you so much for raising that. That's a critical, long-standing concern for the United States, and it continues to be a focus of our diplomacy. Let me be clear that our position has not changed. Uh, the Secretary, I think, was very forth forthright in saying this is an unwise project, as is multi-line Turkstream. Uh, Turkstream, uh, I'm sorry, Nord Stream 2 circumvents or would circumvent Ukraine, uh, potentially leading to something like $2 billion a year in revenue loss from transit fees, uh, bypasses U.S. allies in, in uh, Poland and the Baltic states. Uh, also, I just have to point out on Nord Stream 2, this is a project that would concentrate 75% of the Russian gas to Europe into one pipeline. Uh, so it's not in Europe's interest, it's not in our interest. Um, it's also a political rather than a commercial undertaking, and I think it's important to be crystal clear about that. It is, in, in the context of CATSA, let me say, it is premature to make a determination about Nord Stream 2 absent contractual information, which would be consistent with our guidance. Uh, we're monitoring it closely. Uh, I continue to raise this with German interlocutors, EU interlocutors, as does the Secretary as recently as last week on the trip. What we're doing in a broader sense on Nord Stream 2, um, in addition to speaking up, particularly with the Germans as they form a new government, I think it's important for them to hear from us. We're encouraging EU action. Uh, there is an existing framework in place for the EU to take more aggressive action on Nord Stream 2 and similar projects if it wished to do so politically. Uh, third energy package, and in addition to those existing tools, a revision was proposed in October for the EU gas directive that would even more directly uh, 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 and aggressively address the issue of Nord Stream 2. We also encourage member state action, so to your question specifically, the Secretary was personally involved in uh, encouraging the, the Danes earlier this year to take a really close look at legislation that they were considering. Uh, 
the Poles and other, others in Europe who are like-minded on this issue, we, we coordinate with them to keep our messaging in sync and keep, keep raising the issue. Uh, specifically on your question of what the, the Danes can do, my understanding is that uh, because Nord Stream 2 would go through Danish waters, uh, this is a potentially significant uh, political and legal stumbling block that could really slow progress on the pipeline. It's a positive development that we applaud and we've uh, really coordinated closely with the Danes. The credit goes to Denmark for moving in this direction, but I think it's consistent with European energy security. I just wish we could get Germans and other large EU member states to see it the same way. I, I just, I know my time is up, but just to um, uh, square the circle, it's important to note what you said. You said that this is a political initiative, meaning that uh, most energy economists will tell you that this does not make sense as a financial endeavor moving this gas through a northern route pipeline, which means that it only happens with massive subsidy from the Russian government, meaning they are putting substantial resources into this political initiative. Um, again, another advertisement for the United States and our allies in Europe uh, to be thinking about ways in which we subsidize energy independence because we are simply um, uh, not engaged uh, at the same level uh, as the Russians if they are spending huge amounts of money on uh, compromising European energy security uh, and we are not spending substantial amounts of money uh, to build European energy security. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thanks, Senator Murphy. I, I did leave one minute on my time. I want to use it as long as we're talking about this topic. Uh, you mentioned going through uh, Danish waters as a, as a stumbling block. Are there any other situations like that where it could be blocked as well, other than Germany just simply not accepting it? Well, I think uh, that's an excellent question. And uh, with regard to Nord Stream 2 specifically, uh, in addition to the Danes, there are other countries that this project, uh, whose waters this, uh, territorial waters this project would uh, traverse that I think are considering, for example, the environmental effects, um, looking closely, perhaps if not at similar legislation, looking at the broader question of where they will stand on this as it goes forward. Uh, our approach has been to speak up, particularly uh, with those countries that are like-minded and not wanting to see this go forward to the detriment of European energy security. Uh, we also, at the EU level, continue to encourage, uh, again, and I, and I can't say this strongly enough, the EU to use the tools that it has. And I think there is a fairly broad political consensus in the EU as, an as a set of institutions uh, to move against Nord Stream 2, to use existing tools uh, to develop new ones. The problem in this and so many other areas of uh, EU energy policy is uneven execution, largely because of political uh, resistance from large member states like Germany. Uh, we'll see what happens as the Germans uh, pull their new government together. But uh, to be clear, I think the country that could do the most to stop this project is Germany. Uh, thank you. Senator Shaheen. Well, thank you. Is there any reason to think that a new governing coalition in Germany might change the country's position on this pipeline? Well, it remains to be seen. Obviously, there's been a lot of um, re-coagulation of the political variables in Germany in the, in the last month or so, but I, I think it's clear that the Germans also have a stated commitment to multilateralism and to the European project that is equally important for both of the major parties that are now talking about forming a coalition. I think U.S. diplomacy helps. I think it helps when the Germans hear the concerns of fellow EU and NATO member states. It's something we would not like to see them ignore. And I think we have to use this political opening before the gelatin mold has really set with that government to impress upon them the sense of re responsibility that Germany should have for European energy security. 
Um, well, I was there in October with a group from the Senate, and I was encouraged to hear at that time they were thinking about a different coalition that they um, might reject the pipeline. So I do think there are some scenarios that might allow that to happen. Can you tell me whether the United States is going to continue or maybe it already has decided to continue the high-level discussions on energy issues that um, were established with the U.S.-EU Energy Council back in 2009. Is this is something that the Trump administration wants to continue, and have you had any meetings in this last year? Thank you for that question. Uh, we remain active uh, with the U.S.-EU Energy Council. Uh, my understanding is that we're working on dates for a meeting in the spring, uh, so th there hasn't been a meeting so far this year? Not that I'm aware of. Uh, there has been lower-level coordination, but no, the... Um, Mr. I'm sorry? Burke, has there been a meeting this year? No, there's been, as as Secretary was saying, there has been lower-level coordination. We are looking at hopefully a, a Q1 meeting. And is, do we have an agenda yet for that meeting, and are there items that you're particularly concerned that we need to ad address as part of any discussions? I think, think go ahead. I think uh, it would build on I think it would build on um, the energy security themes that we're talking about. Um, these discussions have always been, uh, I, although I wasn't there, uh, I've been told that discussions are very, very fruitful in terms of um, getting people together and fortifying our allies to, you know, um, stay the course. And uh, so we are very, very focused on on um, trying to set that up for the first quarter of next year. Great, um, Dr. Mitchell. You talked about the formation of the new supervisory board for NAFTA gas in Ukraine. It was my understanding that the current or the recent members of the board had resigned because of political meddling. Are you referring to that board, to a new board? Um, can you tell me what the, the status is currently? Uh, thanks for the question. Yes, that's correct. There was a mass resignation. I'm referring to the more recent reformulation under U.S. and IMF pressure. The Ukrainians moved to set up uh, a new supervisory board that has a majority of independent experts. I want to be clear that that's very positive. While that's very positive, we have yet to see the Ukrainians sign and commit to this, so we continue to keep up the pressure, raise this in our meetings with Ukrainians. Um, I, I think more broadly, if I could uh, comment on the uh, reform landscape more broadly, we are very concerned about uh, uh, steps backward, and this is something that uh, Senator Murphy raised as well, particularly uh, the reluctance to create uh, an independent uh, anti-corruption court, right. and in recent weeks, um, attempts to politicize and move against the leadership of NABU, the anti-corruption uh, agency. Just to, just to clarify real quick, um, mm -hmm. the, the board is like a slate, and all we're waiting for is for somebody to sign it. And once they sign it, the board, once that's enacted, the board can move, hopefully swiftly, uh, to enact some of the reforms needed, such as unbundling. It's a, it's a very big issue. So we, we need to see continued progress, and uh, them appointing the board and making it official would be a, a very good step. So what do we think accounts for the backsliding that we're seeing? Well, I would say, bearing in mind the scale of progress that the Ukrainians have made, if you look at uh, post-communist societies, uh, that transition 
uh, is one that is very difficult, even in the best of circumstances. I think the Ukrainians have enacted an extraordinarily upwardly ambitious uh, reform agenda under p p conditions of geopolitical duress right. and with a war on. I so I think that's a big part of it. Part of it, I think also yeah. politically. But, but just to put a finer point on that, so are you talking about public pressure that is objecting to some of the reforms that have been put in place? Uh, I would say there's two things. First, it's, it's geopolitical and military. There's a war on, and I think that has a tendency to um, create a pressurized environment politically. I, I think secondly, at the political level, there is always a temptation for national leadership to prioritize re-election over the hard decisions that are needed for reform. No, and, that never happens in democracies. In this case, I think particularly as Ukraine moves beyond the low-hanging fruits of reform and more towards the deeper structural, uh, these are difficult and painful reforms, even in the best of circumstances. I think the fact that the Ukrainians have kept up that pace uh, is something we should continue to recognize, as long as so, in our messaging we're keeping up the drumbeat right. of support for continued reform. So do we think NAFTA gas is in danger of losing support from the IMF and the EU if they don't put these um, anti-corruption measures in place, if they don't get the slate of members signed? Well, if the, the Ukrainians aren't able to make decisive progress on both the anti-corruption court and on the issue of gas tariffs, I think they very much jeopardize IMF funding. And this is a point that we've made repeatedly. The Ukrainians have proven very responsive to our concerns when we've raised them. So we'll see what they do. You both mentioned the Kirk Island LNG terminal in Croatia. It's, I've heard recently that there are some real obstacles to getting that moving forward. Can, I don't know, Mr. McCarrick, I guess I should ask you, do, you, do we know what the status of that is and what the challenges are and um, whether we think there are any huge obstacles to actually getting it put in place? Thank you. We have been continuing to provide them with technical support. Um, the uh, message that I've received is that we need to provide some more political support, as with a lot of these issues. Um, what do you mean by political support? Um, more active engagement by the State Department uh, with Croatia uh, to, to um, Continue to move it along is the best way I can put that. Given, I'm very concerned, and I know some other members of this committee are as well, about increased Russian influence in the Balkans and um, the potential for some of the countries there to withstand the pressure that they're going to be getting. And obviously, energy um, security is a critical piece of that. So, it, what more should we be doing? Is the State Department looking at ramping up? that kind of political support for this project? Or are there things that this committee can do to make it clear that we think it's very important and we want to be as supportive as possible? I've had members of my team over there, and they have been reporting back that we, we, we need to send some more senior folks over there. And so we are planning that uh, travel for Q1 of next year. And if I could just add to that, Senator, uh, we did have a team there in November, and we continue to urge uh, at all levels, I mean, all the way up to the president, the criticality of, of Kirk Island, unlike in the Baltic, where you have uh, now two, um, right. one Polish, one Lithuanian, this is really our, our only uh, bet at president in, in the Adriatic. Um, what's needed specifically, I mean, our, our focus is on technical and financial support on kind of on one level, and then the diplomatic and political. I think the technical and financial is primarily about getting the legal framework and especially the export uh, tariffing, uh, tariff uh, regime is absolutely critical because without that, 
um, with tariffs being as high as they are, the ability to take LNG and get it into the rest of the region is uh, impeded. On the political level, I think it's about continually raising this with the Croats and their neighbors, which kind of also trickles back down and speaks to the, the issue of tariffs, I think, is really the, the most critical. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Senator Young. Well, I, I want to thank the chairman for holding this hearing and, and uh, welcoming me as someone who's not a member of this subcommittee so that I can ask some questions of our esteemed witnesses here. Secretary Mitchell, in your testimony, you say that energy security of our allies is a fundamental U.S. national interest. You also say the administration is pursuing a European energy security strategy. So I understand that the administration is soon going to be producing their national security uh, strategy and, and uh, making uh, that public. Given the importance of energy to our international security and our domestic prosperity, uh, will energy security feature prominently in this new national security strategy? Thank you for that question, Senator Young, and it's good to see you again. Uh, it does figure prominently, and uh, the national security strategy that's been put forward uh, emphasizes a three-part approach to energy as it relates to U.S. foreign policy, uh, those three tenets being open markets, to promote exports, and the energy security of U.S. allies. Um, the third of those planks is, is uh, the umbrella for the diver diversification of fuel types, countries of origin, and routes that are the emphasis of my remarks today. Okay, very good. Um, I, saw, I noted recently in the news that uh, Russian ministers were visiting with the Saudis uh, to discuss oil markets and, and coordinate some of their efforts, the Russian production efforts with OPEC. That's been tried before, and uh, we'll see uh, whether or not anyone blinks as, as uh, market forces um, uh, continue to influence their uh, decision-making. But... Um, that reminds us that uh, what we're dealing with here is we think about European energy securities oftentimes. I mean, it's, there are global forces that dictate these prices um, in addition to the regional forces. So is the administration developing a national energy security strategy to cover all regions, not just Europe, with this in mind? Uh, thank you for the question, and um, let me start by saying that, as we know, uh, we're talking about with uh, oil and gas fungible commodities. Russia, the Russian Federation, I think, in its foreign policy and use of energy as a political weapon has suffered disproportionately from the low price environment. And so I would expect to see continued attempts at coordination with other suppliers. I think the Russian role in the, uh, as a not stabilizing presence in many parts of the Middle East can also be understood partly uh, through that geopolitical lens and vis-a-vis -vis Iran. Uh, I think uh, with regard to the, to the strategy that you're asking about, the national security strategy that's been drafted does emphasize energy security. Uh, there's a European component of that, but the three broad tenets of open markets promoting exports, and ensuring the energy security of allies uh, relates to the, the world as a whole and not just to Europe. Secretary Mitchell, uh, I might. Um, Please. Uh, Senator Young, we have been working, uh, the State Department, uh, the White House through the interagency has been working on a macro um, international energy strategy that will be applicable um, both in terms of regions and in terms of supply. So uh, that will be coming out shortly. Okay. Well, I'll look forward to that being published. Um, you anticipate the next few weeks or a couple of months? It's in the interagency. Okay. <laughs> I'll try and figure out what that means uh, later on. But um, let me move on to something else. Yeah, indeed. Um, Russia has demonstrated the will and capacity, uh, as you've 
indicated in your prepared testimony to use energy as a tool of coercion and intimidation against our allies and partners. You cite, uh, one of you, a Swedish study that found 55 instances in which Russia cut off energy for political purposes in only 14 years. Uh, yet you also note that 11 EU member states continue to rely on Russia for more than 75% of annual gas imports. On November 1st, I convened a subcommittee hearing on energy and international development. Among others was uh, a fellow Hoosier, Paul Mitchell, of Indiana's Energy Systems Network. And um, he, he testified at that hearing uh, that uh, innovation exists in our private sector, um, uh, which can uh, help create business opportunities for Americans and also further our national security interests. So uh, there's a lot of innovation in this energy space. And so I guess my question to you is, how can we better utilize American energy resources in private sector innovation to help our allies and partners reduce or even eliminate their vulnerability to Moscow's coercive use of, of uh, energy? I think that's a great question. And I think the way we do that is, is first of all, um, domestically, um, obviously the fracking boom has been very good for our country and increases the possibility of us exporting LNG. The technology aspect is fascinating to me because I just got back from a, a a conference in Portugal, and the um, companies and the innovations in LNG right now are um, moving at a breakneck speed, and they are reducing the costs of both gasification, transportation, regasification, so to the point where uh, American LNG um, is going to be ever more competitive going forward. As for how we help our allies, I think one of the things we can do is increase supply. And we're looking at various projects um, around the world, Western Hemisphere, as to how we can export our technologies and help other countries develop their natural resources, which again would add supply to the market and reduce the influence of uh, actors like OPEC or Russia. Well, in light of the what an economist would call a positive externality, in light of, of the um, benefits uh, to the public that aren't captured uh, in the price of our energy markets, are there things that our government should be doing uh, at the federal level, or perhaps things we should stop doing uh, to facilitate yet more innovation in, in this space uh, to, um, to yet further increase the energy security of our partners and allies in Europe and beyond, perhaps? If I could, Senator, I think that's a very important question. And um, we have, uh, in the case of Europe, I think with Russia next door, uh, a player, Moscow, that is very well versed in the use of energy as a weapon which is politics. And I think the best answer to that and what the U.S. has traditionally promoted and continued to promote is the market. Uh, the market as the best option for diversifying uh, European energy. And consistent with that, the, uh, the national security strategy in emphasizing as the second tenant promoting exports I think is really important. Um, LNG uh, being uh, perhaps foremost, but I would add renewables. Uh, State Department is coordinating with commerce to look at how we can support this plank of the strategy in a more fulsome way in the days ahead. Innovation in the private sector, I think encouraging that here domestically. But also on the European side, to your question specifically, I think when you look at things like regasification and renewables, in terms of how do we help at the government level, I'm not a great believer that government can, at the end of the day, provide a solution better than markets. But I think where we can help is where our businesses face barriers 
operating in Europe. And they, that can come in the form of EU regulations, na national regulations, but also in Central and Eastern Europe, some of the rule of law issues that can impede um, a level playing field. So we have to advocate in our diplomacy for a level playing field. We have to speak up on regulations that disproportionately penalize our companies. And I think we have to encourage allies, including some of our closest allies, who have ongoing uh, dis business disputes that may be partly political in nature, to quickly and amicably resolve those cases so that there's not a chilling effect on uh, U.S. investment more broadly. Uh I see that my time has, has run over. I just uh, would conclude thanking both of you for uh, your testimony and invite Mr. McCarrick uh, to Indiana to visit with Energy Systems Network because they, they've specialized for a number of years now in, in working on these public-private partnerships, tying innovation to different governmental and non-governmental entities to solve uh, challenging global problems like this. Is this uh, an invitation you can accept? I look forward to hearing more about it. <laughs> I, uh, my very first internship was in the uh, private sector initiatives office for uh, uh, President Reagan, so I'm very well aware of, uh, since college, public-private partnerships working well. I'm grateful for your consideration. That sounds like a definite maybe. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Senator Menendez. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Yeah. Thank you both for your testimony. Uh, I want to follow up on Senator Young's uh, last line of questioning. And Secretary McCarrick, uh, Energy is a global market. Is that fair to say? Mostly, yes. Yeah. So uh, unlike the Russians where they may very well direct energy to a location for the purposes of their politics beyond the what's the best economic factor that they could achieve, uh, to the extent that we are producing more energy, we are producing it uh, in the context of exporting it in a global market. We don't direct our energy. Is that fair to say? Correct. All right. So uh, when we talk about creating more energy for exportation, uh, it seems to me that um, the realities of affecting uh, places like Ukraine, where we would have an interest to offset uh, the challenges of uh, Russia and what they seek to do uh, to bring Ukraine to its knees, uh, at the end of the day, would need a more directed effort. And I, I, I sometimes wonder whether or not, uh, I know that ardent believers of the marketplace believe that everything can be resolved through it, but it seems to me that if you're going to say that we're going to create more energy beyond for domestic consumption, for export, ex, exportation, that then, uh, yes, you'll add to the global supply, but whoever is the biggest buyer in the global supply will take that supply. So if Japan needs more LNG, they'll, they'll seek to, maybe they'll be the higher bidder. It won't go to Ukraine, won't go to other places we care about. So do we ever think about if we're going to use energy as a way to not only uh, create uh, opportunities uh, for jobs here at home, do we ever think about using energy in a way that also matches our national, uh, national interests and national security interests? Well, I think we have in many ways, and the outside of putting it in the greater marketplace. No, no understood. I, I guess I guess what I look at is the efforts the U.S. government has had in terms of um, convincing uh, uh, European countries to um, open uh, gas terminals and keeping their options open and making sure that the options are there for them to receive the gas to receive LNG from us. And we've also contributed, you know, uh, efforts to uh, increase. Um, the interconnectivity of Europe uh, through pipelines and also through trying to supply them with gas from, you know, other sources such as the Southern Gas Corridor. Mm -hmm. 
Let me ask you this, as you're, I'm sure, both no doubt keenly aware, some of our most stalwart European partners uh, have expressed concerns about uh, the law that Congress passed uh, earlier this year, levying sanctions against Russia for its ongoing occupation of Ukraine, for its interference in our elections, for its continuing human rights abuses, among other things. These included sectoral sanctions against Russia energy development projects. Uh, now, I'm, I'm sure you're also both aware that the United States and its allies haven't always started seeing eye to eye on the question of sanctions. But when the United States has led efforts to financially isolate and target destabilizing actors, ultimately our allies in pursuit, in pursuit of shared uh, security concerns have joined our efforts, and that makes them more stronger and effective. What steps has the administration taken to specifically implement provisions in the countering America's adversaries through Sanctions Act that has notably targeted Russian energy um, sectors? If I may, Senator, thank you for that question. It's a very important issue and one that uh, I have focused a lot of attention to, as has the Secretary. Uh, with regard to CATSA specifically, we are implementing. We've issued public guidance on Sections 231, 225, and 232. Uh, I think it was appropriate and worthwhile that the legislation, particularly on 232 in energy, directed the State Department to uh, consult extensively with allies. I think that was wise in light of the this archipelago of sanctions that we have in various efforts, not only vis-a-vis -vis uh, Russia but also Iran, where we're working with European allies to ensure the effectiveness of those sanctions. We took that very seriously and spent a lot of time um, talking to and listening to our allies and to their concerns. We are currently reviewing trans some transactions, and I don't want to comment on those publicly. I can say that we take it very seriously. Uh, we've sent some initial reports to Congress. I know we're working on a Ukraine-related report that's coming up for January. I would simply say that um, sanctions are a tool, and to be effective, they have to be used wisely. It's important that they not hurt our allies more than they do our uh, rivals or competitors. And also that, as has happened in the past with other families of, of sanctions, uh, the guidance, uh, it, it, how this is executed evolves with the realities, uh, but it's something that I, I get all of that. I get all of that. I, I've been uh, the architect of uh, the, the greatest number of sanctions in the Congress uh, over the course of 25 years. I get that. My question is, uh, what are, and the consultations are something that we built into the law, absolutely necessary. But are we going to be hearing within the near future about some specific actions taken against the Russian energy sector as contemplated in the law? Just give me a yes or no and give me a time frame. I'm not even asking you which ones. We're reviewing transactions now. That doesn't, okay, that, that doesn't mean anything to me. So uh, at some point, you know, uh, part of the oversight of Congress is going to be what are you doing to actually pursue sanctions in this regard? And, the administration seems to have a reticence as it relates to sanctions on Russia. So there's no use of Congress passing legislation to enable the administration to get Russia to move in a different direction if there is a reticence uh, in doing so. So I'm looking forward to seeing when you actually do something. Let me ask you this. There have been some interesting discoveries in limited development of energy resources in the Eastern Mediterranean, Cyprus, Israel, uh, among others. Uh, who have been reliable U.S. allies and partners. What prospects do you assess for further development of energy resources in the eastern Mediterranean, uh, and how can that change the dynamic for Europe, for example, if we can find the ways in which 
trans both the, the development of those energy sources and its transmission uh, or its pipelines can be achieved. Do you, do you see that as an opportunity? Uh, Thank you for the question. Yes, I do see it as an opportunity. We've followed it closely. It's potentially promising and could be part of that broader mix of sources for Europe. Uh, the political dynamic in the case of Cyprus specifically, I think, uh, deserves most of our attention on, on that issue. We recognize uh, the right to develop the resources. We also continue to hold the position that any resources that are developed should be shared equitably in the case of, of, of Cyprus between the two communities. Um, and we continue to encourage between both sides to reduce the Between the two communities meaning the occupied part of uh, Cyprus? Well, we continue to encourage the development of a bi-zonal, bi-communal federation. I know, but until this is the only country in the European Union that is part of the European Union that has a sovereign identity, uh, which uh, we somehow would suggests that their energy development can be dictated by a country's outside of its sovereign identity. And I, I think that's a slip, forget about Cyprus for the moment, that's a slippery slope. Mm. If you're gonna let Turkey determine what in fact Cyprus can or cannot do in the development of its resources in uh, that whole part of the Eastern Mediterranean, uh, I'm not sure, you know, not that Turkey has proven itself lately to be a particularly great ally of the United States. So uh, I hope that that's not the State Department's uh, philosophy as it relates to uh, how that development takes place. Well, thank you for your concern, and I, and I share the concern. I understand the point that you're making. I would just say that any sustainable long-term development of those resources will require a political component. And again, we continue to say that any resources that are developed should be shared equitably, and we encourage both sides to uh, reduce tensions and, and define a common future. Well, I'm all for resolving tensions and defining a common future, but I'm also not uh, for having a country who is part of the European Union and has all of the other relationships and has been a relatively good ally of the United States, particularly in critical moments, to be forced to determine that their sovereignty is somehow beholden to some other country when it comes to develop. We wouldn't accept that. I don't know whether any other country it would. So anyhow, I look forward to working with you on those issues. Senator Brasso. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, this is on uh, Nord Stream 2 pipeline and whoever feels best qualified to answer. I just, you know, Russia continues to undermine peace and security in Europe through a variety of mechanisms, including the use of energy as a weapon, as you just mentioned, Secretary Mitchell. Uh, Russia is Europe's main energy supplier. Russia also has significant ownership of uh, Europe's energy infrastructure, including pipelines, distribution, storage facilities. The European Union members have identified the risks that have been associated with Europe's reliance on Russian energy and have been moving toward a more unified EU energy policy. We in the United States have been working closely with our partners in Europe to promote energy security through energy diversification uh, in the types of energy, the source of energy, uh, and, and the routes of uh, energy flow uh, to Europe. But despite the important work, I am still very much concerned about the recent actions in Europe uh, demonstrate a lack of seriousness, in my opinion, in addressing Europe's reliance on Russia. And the prime example is in the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. The proposed pipeline would run from Russia under the Baltic Sea directly to Germany. Nord Stream 2 would follow the path of the original Nord Stream pathway and would double the capacity of Russia's gas exports to Germany. Uh, Russia has, with, with assistance of five European energy companies, is working to make Europe more reliant on Russian gas by undermining the diversification 
of Europe's energy resources, supplies, and routes. So several European countries have raised concerns, as have I, about Nord Stream 2. I think it's under, uh, undercutting sanctions on Russia, increase Russia's political leverage over Eastern Europe. In addition, it's estimated that the pipeline would cost the Ukraine about $2 billion a year in uh, natural gas transit fees. You know, in, in countering, in, in the legislation, countering America's adversaries through Sanctions Act, uh, the United States reaffirmed these concerns. The law states that it's the policy of the United States to continue to oppose Nord Stream 2 pipeline, given its detrimental impacts on the European Union's energy security, and gas market development in Central and Eastern Europe, uh, and on energy reforms in Ukraine. The law also imposed sanctions on U.S. and foreign people who invest or engage in trade that enhances Russia's ability to construct energy uh, export uh, pipelines. So can you talk a little bit about the administration, what plans the administration may have to impose sanctions on individuals who are investing in Russia's energy export pipelines projects, such as Nord Stream 2, and what efforts the administration is taking to demonstrate the United States continues to oppose Nord Stream 2? Thank you for the question, Senator Barrasso. And let me say that I share your concern about Nord Stream 2, and uh, it's been a longstanding U.S. policy and interest to uh, fight this project as something that's not in the interest of European energy security. Uh, the uh, CATSA legislation, Section 232, uh, that bears upon this, uh, explicitly called on the State Department to coordinate closely with allies. And I would note that that set this uh, section apart from 231 by my reading, uh, that the Congress went out of its way to direct us to keep in mind the concerns of allies. So I think our view has been to see that sanctions broadly uh, as a set of tools, which we have in place vis-a-vis -vis Russia and Iran and elsewhere, really require close coordination with allies. And what we didn't want to do, uh, in keeping with what we understood to be the spirit of the legislation, we didn't want to open up new gaps between ourselves and allies at a moment when we need to hold ranks on sanctions across the board. Having said that, our position continues to be uh, to uh, raise repeatedly and very strongly with our European allies that Nord Stream 2 is, as Secretary Tillerson two, said two weeks ago, an unwise project. Same with TurkStream. Uh, it circumvents Ukraine, all the reasons that you've given, the loss of revenue, the Baltic states, uh, the Poland, etc. Um, again, this is a political rather than a commercial project. What we're doing on that specifically right now, we're speaking up. Uh, so myself and the Secretary on a regular basis raise this with uh, German counterparts. We raise this at the EU level. Uh, I, again, I think the formation of the new German government gives us an opportunity to raise this uh, in a way that calls on the Germans to show responsibility in a European context. We're encouraging EU action, both through the uh, existing framework of third energy package, but also the revision of the EU gas directive, which is uh, directly aimed at Nord Stream 2, uh, and encouraging member state action, working with the Danes and others to look at how Nord Stream 2 would affect their interests in, in their territory. We're also encouraging uh, competing projects, Baltic Pipe, IPL, others. Uh, I think... Uh, Broadly on, on CATSA, uh, because it is still very early, uh, I think it's premature to make a determination about Nord Stream 2 absent contractual information, because that's what the guidance that we have in place says. But I can simply say at this point that it's a concern. We raise it on a regular basis, and we're looking at it uh, very closely.
Can I just move, because you mentioned Ukraine, because they're traditionally very dependent on Russian natural gas. Russia's continually used that dependence as a weapon to intimidate, to influence, to coerce. The government of Ukraine has been trying to take some steps to reform its energy sector, to improve energy security, but let's face it, despite having incredible resources, the energy sector continues to face a lot of challenges and is really performing below potential in Ukraine. Can you talk about efforts the State Department's currently taking to help Ukraine increase its energy security and its reliability and their efficiency, and you know, what, what can we do there? Yes, sir, thank you for that question. That is a very important issue and a priority for us at the Bureau. Uh, let me just say that the political and geopolitical future of Ukraine is intimately linked to how well we succeed in this task, uh, we being the United States, Europe, and Ukraine. Uh, we're working now on Ukraine energy security plan as called for under Section uh, 257 of CATSA. That's underway now. Uh, a report is due to Congress in January. We are, uh, we are jointly developing that uh, strategy uh, in coordination and cons consultation with the Ukrainian government. Uh, I don't want to prejudge uh, what will be in that strategy, but let me just say that broadly, our focus continues to be on two things with the Ukrainians on energy. One, uh, to use our assistant programs to reform, uh, encourage re reform of the Ukrainian energy sector, diversify sources, fight corruption, which is one of the biggest impediments to Ukraine unlocking its energy potential, uh, and integrating with European uh, markets. And then secondly, technical support uh, to boost domestic production, which I think uh, the Ukrainians have made tremendous headway on uh, since 2014, and to increase energy uh, efficiency. Uh, we've been encouraged by some of the most recent reforms, uh, particularly the move towards uh, a more independent uh, uh, NAFTA gas supervisory board. We want to see that uh, actually consummated and acted upon. Uh, and we continue to keep up the messaging on uh, gas tariffs. Uh, and uh, that's an ongoing process. Uh, it's something that I raise on a regular basis, that the Secretary raises on a regular basis, and I think as you'll see in our Ukrainian uh, energy uh, uh, security plan uh, that we present to Congress in, in January, uh, it's something we take very seriously. Uh, Mr. Chairman, do I have time for one more question? Okay, thanks. I want to talk about Spain a little bit. They have a potential to greatly reduce Europe's reliance on Russian gas. Uh, the LNG terminals and gas pipelines from, from Africa have a combined import capacity of about eight uh, 80 billion cubic uh, meters of, of gas per year for Spain. This represents three times Spain's annual consumption. So Spain is, isn't importing the full capacity because of the inability to then transport it to other areas in Europe. There's currently insufficient pipeline capacity to transport that natural gas from Spain uh, to eastern and southeastern Europe. Uh, Europe's been working on adding some interconnectors and reverse flow capabilities from its pipelines in order to transport natural gas to countries that are at risk of being cut off uh, by Russia. Progress has been limited. Could you talk a little bit about, since Spain has this greater import capacity uh, than the volume of natural gas they consume, what efforts are being taken to allow this excess capacity to be used in other parts of Europe, particularly the more Russian-dependent countries? Absolutely, and I'm glad that you raised that, Senator. It's not a subject that uh, attracts attention very often, but is absolutely critical. All you have to do is look at a map uh, of LNG uh, import terminals in Europe to see the overwhelming uh, majority of Europe's LNG absor absorption capacity is Spanish. And the absence of uh, uh, sufficiently robust infrastructure from Spain and into France really is a missing link in the overall puzzle. Uh, I think part of this... Um, also reflects the, the broader problem that the United States has encouraged our allies for a long time to get at, which is, again, looking at a map, the infrastructure is overwhelmingly uh, east to west. 
There's very little north-south. There's very little intra-European. The United States continues to raise that broadly uh, uh, with our allies. I think with regard to this issue specifically, we would like to see the EU list Spanish-French interconnectors as a project of interest. And that's where our diplomacy can help. Uh, it's something that I think in the past the United States has occasionally raised but not been assertive about, but it's something that we can, we can continue to raise in the days ahead, and I appreciate you raising it. I think it's a, it's a considerable impediment to European energy security. Uh, thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Just to, actually, just to echo the Secretary's thoughts, um, I was just in Portugal two weeks ago, so let's include Portugal in that, in that uh, framework, and had long conversations with Ambassador Glass about combining what Portugal has and Spain has and, and connecting it with Europe, because it is essential. There are a lot of uh, capacity in those terminals that's not being used right now. Thank you very much. Thanks, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Barrasso. I really have just one further line of questioning, but it's going to go right back to what I was attempting to do in my first line of questioning. Uh, Secretary McCarrick, you mentioned in your testimony that Lithuania, by you know, building the, the, the terminal there, was able then to negotiate a 20% reduction in its price of natural gas from, from Russia. And I realize this is not a direct linear relationship here, but 20% of 365 billion euros would be about 73 billion euros of savings if you diversify and you can you know, hold your suppliers accountable and get a better price. You know, so I'm an accountant, I come from the private sector, it just seems obvious to me that what you want to do is you want to increase the number of suppliers to provide you with that bargaining power. And that's what I find so puzzling about this entire conversation. It's just so obvious that Europe has to diversify its supply chain, which means it has to diversify its delivery systems. What is the stumbling block? I mean, I'm, I'm not, a, not a real good diplomat here. I, you know, we speak in diplomatic terms, but I mean, I want to know what is this, what and or who, what nation is the stumbling block to actually having this occur? No, I mean, I think, it's either one of you. I think it's a combination of factors. I think there's some historical... So, so start with the priority. What's, what's the biggest stumbling block? And then kind of go on down and you know, list the factors. Some of the, some of the legacy regulatory issues um, have impeded the growth of this. Um, some of it is political, I believe, okay, well, in nature. So you think that's the top one, legacy regulatory impediments? Indeed. Can you, can you be specific on those? I can provide you with examples later. I don't have them right in front of me right now. Okay. We'll keep going. Um, I would also say political issues. Uh, there is certain um, uh, views from certain countries in Europe that uh, gas is, is not as clean as we think it is. Um, and so they're uh, looking for uh, the different uh, sources uh, in terms of uh, fueling. Which would be what? Well, wind and solar. Uh, for but, they're, but they're finding that's enormously... Well, I mean, the, 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 doesn't doesn't even begin to. Well, we we take we you know again the French are very uh, you know anti-fracking, and so their their nature is to say, well, we're not going to take gas from the U.S. because it's it's fracked gas. It's is a that also the impediment to pipelines through France from from Spain? They they also are so dependent on nuclear power. I have not looked into the issue, but I imagine yes. Mm. If I could just add to that, Senator Johnson, I think you're raising in many ways the key issue. And if I had to rank the, prior, uh, the uh, obstacles, I would just put a huge one at the very top, and it's overwhelmingly political. And I think it's the impediment that large Western European member states, and particularly Germany. Okay, but there we go. I mean, there, isn't that the elephant in the room? Absolutely. Okay. And I, I, would I think we should get that out on the table so we understand that's where our diplomacy, our diplomatic efforts sure. have to reside. Say, hey, if you want a safe and secure Europe, if we want to help out Ukraine, 
we need to get real here, and, and we need to start investing more money. We've got to have the north-south corridors. You know, we've got to be smart about this, and we've got to block Nordstrom, too, because that's going to be totally counter to what our, our efforts really need to be long-term. I, I agree with that, and I would say Germany is a very important ally to the United States, but on energy security, Germany gets it wrong, and it gets it wrong in a way that hurts other EU and NATO member states, uh, both financially and geopolitically. I would say that in the case of Germany, and I could uh, list a few other countries, primarily in Western Europe, the countries that are most eager to phase out nuclear, to prohibit shale, that, that frown on coal, that fight projects like the uh, Three Seas Initiative, which is all about north-south infrastructure, uh, are the same countries that are promoting projects like Nord Stream 2. Well, we're probably going to be taking a trip over to Europe. Maybe you could help arrange a meeting with those individuals in Germany where we can uh, make that point. Uh, Senator Murphy. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Mr. Chairman. I, I, I wanted to just tie together and maybe one, one last question or two the discussions we've been having about whether or not traditional uh, market approaches can work. Um, one of the reasons that I am advocating for spending money on energy security in the way that we spend money on traditional defense security is that I'm concerned that uh, there is not a traditional market solution. And we've sort of teased at some of the reasons why I have that concern today, but I wanted to maybe wrap it all into one question. Um, the first question is, to the extent, as Senator Menendez said, that we put LNG into a global market, will it go to Europe? We, we cannot, as a policy matter, uh, tell uh, that gas, that LNG, where to go. Uh, and you've raised a couple issues as to why it might not land there. One, tariff structures in Europe, um, and B, the fact that there are better prices in other parts of the world. Um, so. Um, I'd love you to tease that out a little bit more. And second, um, the market is distorted, as we've mentioned, by the Russians, who put massive subsidy into maintaining their energy dominance over Europe. So even if we were able to solve some of these tariff issues, let's say, why would we believe that the Russians wouldn't respond by making a substantial new investment or subsidy in the product that they're sending to make sure that they maintain that relationship with European energy states. Um, those seem to be two pretty significant issues. The fact that there's better markets for LNG other places besides Europe right now uh, as we start to move stuff out of the United States and that the Russians will always respond with subsidy unless we have the capacity to offer that same kind of subsidy. And when I say we, I mean the United States and Europe together. Thank you for that question, uh, Senator, and I think you're raising an important issue. On the subject of LNG specifically, um, you're right that because this is a fungible commodity and it's going to follow price, most of it goes to Asia. And uh, just to give the stat on that, it's, I think, 10 percent, so 0.3 BCMA out of a total of 3.2 BCMA that the United States exports. Only that 10% goes to Europe. What I would say, though, is that um, where LNG makes the biggest near-term impact, and long-term, it's potentially revolutionary both for our economy and for uh, Europe in a geopolitical sense, uh, where it makes the biggest near-term impact is it changes the calculus, particularly for small Eastern countries when they go to negotiate a deal with, with Gazprom. If they have options, it changes everything. Uh, it gives them leverage that they didn't have before. Gazprom loves to lock little Eastern European countries into straitjackets of long-term contracts. Uh, if you have almost any other option, 
however much on the horizon it is, if there's an LNG terminal that's being completed, it dramatically changes the dynamic at the negotiating table. Lithuania is exhibit A. We want to see an exhibit B, C, D, E, F across the region. It has, in that sense, the fact that it's going to Asia, while it, that may be uh, the central fact from a, from a commercial standpoint, geopolitically, there is a ripple effect to that, and that's part of why we want to keep encouraging it. I would say broadly that there is a, a, a overwhelmingly a market solution for these things. I think the role of government, I see as being primarily about uh, removing barriers on our side and on the European side of the Atlantic. So on this side of the Atlantic, for example, um, we have not shown alacrity, frankly, until this administration in really working to remove some of the barriers in export licensing, for example, or overall willingness of the federal government to see LNG get onto the water. Uh, I think the pr uh, previous administration, for a variety of reasons, was, was loath to do that, and I think it's had a tremendously positive effect for this administration to accelerate those efforts. Uh, on the European side, I think uh, uh, encouraging the development of infrastructure is key. That's something that's primarily about diplomacy. I think government does have a role to play there when, we, uh, when we're talking to allies. But ultimately, it's going to come down to whether companies decide on a commercial basis to invest in projects. So I would argue that there is a role for government. I think it's primarily about diplomacy, uh, and it's about removing barriers. The only thought I would add is, again, the technology aspects to this. Um, the, you know, the, the idea that the, there's no floor for Russian gas, I think, is probably a false narrative. Um, I think that, they're, uh, that the more competitive we can be in terms of LNG, the more we can drive down you know, the markets and the more attractive we can make uh, our product to the Europeans. Um, I, I really don't see, and I, 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 I guess maybe I've, I'm, I'm brimming with optimism on the technology side of it because I just came from this conference where everybody was talking about reducing cost and doing it um, with advanced technologies. And so I would like to think that we can be ever more competitive going forward and, 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 and really be an alternative to Russian gas. We constantly, over the course of my time in the Senate, have underestimated the lengths that Russia will go in order to protect its interests in and around its periphery. I hope that we do not underestimate what they will do and the subsidy they will provide in order to continue their energy dominance. And I hope that um, that calculation, uh, a clear-eyed calculation about what Russia will do, will inform our policy going forward. Thank you very much. Senator Shaheen. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, one of the concerns that I have about this conversation is that we've spent now an hour and a half talking about energy issues in Europe, and not once has anyone mentioned energy efficiency and the demand side of energy. Um, one of the reasons Ukraine is having, has had so many energy issues is because they were the least efficient country in Europe in terms of um, using energy. So can one of you talk about what um, what we're doing in, in any energy conversations to raise our interest in encouraging energy efficiency? And again, that's a place where U.S. companies have been at the forefront of developing um, off-the-shelf technologies that address efficiency, whether it's in lighting, heating, um, whatever it is, and so I would hope that that's part of any conversation we're having with countries in Europe. Mm. Thank you for that question, Senator Shaheen. It is an absolutely crucial 
component, and it's one that in our diplomacy, when dealing with European allies and partners on energy security, we do raise on a regular basis. Let me start with Eastern Europe, which I think you're right to highlight as an area that, I mean, in the case of Ukraine, energy efficiency could make all the difference. And right. the even at the small margins, the outcomes are potentially uh, dramatic. Uh, as uh, I don't want to preview too much of the, uh, uh, the Ukraine energy security strategy that we're putting together as part of CATSA uh, that, that will come to Congress in, um, in January, but I'll just say that uh, increasing energy efficiency is part of that second plank of our current approach in Ukraine, and it's something that we raise on a regular basis. The gains that the Ukrainians have made in the last few years on energy efficiency uh, both, I mean, at, at, a, at the household level and then ag in an aggregate sense is really dramatic. And uh, I think um, there are other cases in, in Central and Eastern Europe where encouraging that could do a lot of good. One of the ways that we encourage it in Europe as a whole is, uh, as you say, with regard to U.S. technologies in renewables and, I mean, I think broadly across the board in energy efficiency, the United States is a leader in developing technologies in this regard. Um, we promote uh, greater energy efficiency in Europe on a regular basis in conversations. But I think um, one of the ways that we can do this in the near term, there are a growing number of disputes in Europe that relate to U.S. companies. Some of uh, One very prominent case in Poland that uh, involves a U.S. company that uh, operates in renewables uh, that has a chilling effect on other U.S. companies who would look at Central Eastern Europe. So I think we want to encourage our allies to make progress on uh, cases that could have that chilling effect. There are barriers uh, in many European countries that prevent U.S. Uh, technologies from operating on a level playing field, and so we want to make headway against those. Um, I think this is consistent with the NSC's uh, uh, energy pillars, uh, the, the uh, open markets promoting uh, uh, exports. Uh, I think also just helping to reduce dependence on, on, on fossil fuel has been and always will be part of that mix. Um, and, and in particular, I think the U.S. engaging with uh, Europe through uh, ARENA, the International Renewables Energy Agency, um, we're currently working, the uh, Department of State is working with Commerce to explore ideas for how we can better promote U.S. options in Europe in the realm of energy efficiency and uh, renewables. Uh, and that's an ongoing process that I think uh, in support of the White House's uh, NSS could do a lot of good. Well, I agree. And just to be clear, I'm a big supporter of renewables, but I'm really talking about the demand side, the efficiency side here, which is different than renewables. And, and I hope that that's part of every conversation that we're having. Um, also, in our military, we've seen the benefits that the U.S. military has gained from adopting some of these um, technologies and strategies, and I would hope we're sharing those as well. I, I want to you mentioned CATSA and the efforts under CATSA, and Senator Menendez expressed his concern about how quickly we are implementing some of those provisions. As you're aware, I'm sure, one of the provisions requires the administration to report to Congress by February on Russian oligarchs and their potential ties to the Kremlin's dealings. Um, I hope we have your commitment today that we will see that report on time and with real substance. Yes, ma'am, you do. Um, thank you. And can you, either one of you, discuss whether the administration is considering using the secondary sanctions that are allowed to prevent the Kremlin from manipulating energy, the energy sector? That's something that has been a subject of internal conversation. I'm, uh, for reasons 
similar to those that I gave earlier, I'm hesitant to uh, speak too much publicly about where we're at in that, but it, okay. it's something we're you, looking at. You don't need to say any more, but let me just say, I hope that that is under consideration, active consideration, because if it's not, I can assure you that I will come back, and I would bet other members of this committee will come back and put that as a requirement that should be considered as we're looking at ways that we can influence and respond to the Kremlin's corrupt behavior. Can I make, can me, I make one point on sanctions sure. real quick? I mean, one of the things that Senator Menendez said was that, you know, if we're not sanctioning companies, we're not doing our job. But I think one of the things that we need to realize is that sanctions have a chilling effect going forward, that companies are afraid to do business with Russia because they will be sanctioned going forward. So I think that we need to focus that the sanctions are actually doing something that people aren't seeing necessarily because the investment isn't happening. I hope that's the case. I think any kind of um, data that can indicate that that is in fact what's happening would be helpful. Yes, I, I might just have a final question, and that's around Turkey. Um, as we have seen over the last year, uh, President Erdogan and Turkey have moved closer to Russia and to Putin, and we've seen a lot of uh, coverage of their S-400 missile defense system deal that Russia has provided to Turkey. But one other area has been in the energy sector, and they're talking about a pipeline across Turkey where the energy is not really going to go to Turkey. So do you have any um, theories about why Erdogan would be willing to cozy up to Putin to do this kind of a pipeline when Turkey doesn't seem to be getting any benefit? I don't have uh, speculation uh, to share with you on that matter specifically. I'd be happy to look into it more closely and get back to you. Uh, but I will say broadly on Turkey that one of our greatest concerns right now is uh, the pattern of behavior that we've seen uh, in recent days, particularly with regard to the treatment of our locally employed staff, the detained Americans. Uh, it's a strategic relationship that's vital, so we continue to work closely with the Turks as allies, and we continue to ra raise concerns in many areas, including S-400, which uh, the Secretary has raised, I have raised. Uh, this, this is part of our ongoing conversation with the right. Turks, uh, and will continue to be. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thanks, Senator Shaheen. Uh, one thing I do like to do is give the witnesses an opportunity just to either summarize your comments or you know, maybe answer a question that wasn't asked, but I'll start with you, uh, Secretary McCarrick. Nothing? Nothing. Okay, that's sir. fine. Secretary Mitchell? Uh, I might just try to end on an optimistic note that uh, I think we're all well aware, and certainly you and this subcommittee are because you follow these issues for so long, at the bleaker aspects of European energy security, the uh, wintertime cutoffs, which uh, continue to be a, a, an unfortunate reality. I would just say that broadly, I think the picture is improving over time. Uh, in part because the United States continues to play a proactive role, but also the efforts of our, our European partners. If you went back to um, 2014 and the start of the Ukraine war, and then you kind of fast-forwarded to now, and you looked back and you tried to kind of have a, a panoramic view of the situation, I think, first and foremost, the advent of LNG as an option. Uh, Senator Murphy, I understand your view and your concerns, but I think it continues to make a, a, a critical difference. Uh, the end of destination clauses has made a huge difference. Uh, in creating better pricing. I mean, the uneven pricing structures where you get a vast disparity, almost double the amount that people are paying for energy consumption in Eastern Europe versus Western Europe. Um, I think Ukraine is less vulnerable than it was. Uh, and uh, as 
uh, more options come online, LNG, uh, as in LNG and uh, in other fields around uh, Europe, uh, and also as the European Union hopefully continues to take seriously its obligations on third energy package, uh, I think the, the trajectory is broadly positive. It's something that we have to be diligent about encouraging. Well, thanks, Secretary Mitchell. First of all, I couldn't agree more. Uh, it's amazing if you're a monopolist and all of a sudden you even have you know, potential competition, how you might start modifying your behavior, much less actual competition. So uh, the, the example of Lithuania is pretty powerful. So it's, again, it's obvious the direction we need to, to take, and we need to make sure we can get rid of some of those impediments, the stumbling blocks. Uh, but again, I want to thank the witnesses. I really want to thank my Senate colleagues here. This is a well-attended hearing. It just shows you how important this issue is. So again, thank you for your service to the country. With that, the hearing record will remain open until Thursday, December 14th at 6 p.m. for the submission of statements and questions for the record. This hearing is adjourned.